If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to John chapter 8 with me this morning. John chapter 8 and verse 30 is where we're going to start. John chapter 8 and verse 30. I want to begin by reading this to you. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And friends, when this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Now, I don't think I have to tell many of you where this opening remark came from. These are the very last words of Martin Luther King's famous speech when he delivered them in Washington, D.C. in 1963. Free at last. Free at last. The title of my sermon, though, this morning is The Freedom That Only Jesus Can Provide. Precious freedom. I remember that movie, Braveheart, Mel Gibson portrayed that great Scottish chief, William Wallace. And at the end of that movie, as he is giving up his last breath, and they whisper into his ear to recant, and he doesn't, and the, the, the executioner quiets the crowd, and he yells out, Freedom! And from there, a nation fought for its freedom. The truth is, in Canada, in the United States, and the West, we love the idea of freedom, don't we? We love it. I mean, after all, every one of you, as I look at your faces, because I know you all, and I know things about you, and I think we would all here like to say, not only am I free, but I have a free will. Okay? Well, just for a few minutes this morning... Maybe in the spirit of Martin Luther King, because this was his speech, I have a dream. What if, what if I told you this morning that true freedom, eternal freedom, is something so much better, so much deeper, more profound than anything you could possibly imagine? What if... I told you that much or most of our ideas in a 21st century world of freedom today, and I say this with all due respect, come from the pit of hell and the lies of Satan. That the world, collectively as its humanity, has bought into the greatest deception of human history. What if I told you that God's word, not popular opinion, not culture, has the key for us to know and understand what real freedom is. And then imagine what it would be like to know and understand true freedom. 
Imagine what it would be like to not only know it and understand it, but to embrace it and live your life by it and then rest in it and enjoy it for eternity. Hmm. What if I told you that true freedom, real freedom, will actually make sense of this life with its ups and downs? What if I told you that real freedom gives us hope in the face of pains and trials and and the unexplained becomes bearable? What if real freedom, the freedom that only Jesus can provide, sets you free, both your mind and your body, and most importantly, your soul? How amazing and incredible would that kind of freedom be? See, this is the freedom that I think in church we play with, we fantasize about, and we actually imagine, but how many of you really have it? See, what would you do to have this type of freedom? How precious would this kind of freedom be to you to own it and know it's secure for you forever? And how tragic would it be to be offered this kind of freedom and then reject it? Or worse, to be offered eternal freedom only to be deceived and think, that you are free, or that you're almost free, or that you're pursuing freedom. Because if you think about our world today, I would submit that freedom is on a wholesale delivery system of the world. I mean, heck, there's even one of our financial institutions that's called Freedom 55. So right out of the gates, in our world of Canada, here in St. John's, Newfoundland, some people see freedom as financial security. For others, it's to be debt-free. For some, it's cancer-free or pain-free or to be mentally free. For some, freedom is found in job security or relationship security or to be physically safe. Still others want or at least think they need fame to be free or pleasure or popularity or acceptance. For some of you that are teenagers or younger or you're in university Maybe you think freedom is freedom from the rules, freedom to make up your own mind, freedom from mom and dad, or freedom from school or grades or tests or even sports. And so this morning, as a group of people gathered here today on this Sunday in February, as you and I, and as we contemplate, what, what does it mean to be free? We need to be able to ask honestly, free from what or from whom? You see, you're going to find that there are as many definitions of freedom as there are people in the world. When I did a study over the last couple of weeks for this, even random people like President uh, Roosevelt or that English aristocrat William Murray, you're going to find a definition of freedom. You see, Roosevelt was the one who made popular that freedom was freedom from something. He said freedom was freedom from hunger or freedom from fear or want, but he also said it was freedom to something. It was Roosevelt who said we needed to be free to worship any way we want. Freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom to own land, freedom to be equal. But believe it or not, for this aristocrat William Murray, he actually wrote down in print that he felt to be free was only found in living under government by law. Now, you know as well as I do, many today would disagree with that. But in John chapter 8, verses 30 to 36... 
Jesus is going to define freedom. And John, the author, wants us to see another facet of the glorious message of Jesus. And again, don't ever forget that we're on a journey in this gospel. John wants to lead us to that conclusion. You've heard me read these verses, right? John chapter 20, verse 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these. So John 8, 30 to 36 are written, for here's the purpose, so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and here's the result, that by believing you might have life, or could I say freedom in his name. And so church, as we come to John 8, and we're going to look at over the next few weeks, John 8, 30 to 59, you're going to see a three-part play. This is what you're going to see. Part one is when the Jews argue with Jesus that they are physical descendants of Abraham, and Jesus says, yes, but you're not spiritual descendants, so you actually don't understand what freedom is, which we're going to talk about today. Part two is Jesus' pronouncement that the Jews are actually not children of God at all, something they thought and assumed they were. And part three is the climax of John 8, and then everything takes off in the rest of the gospel from here. At the end of it, when Jesus says, I am greater than Abraham, and we will see one of the most profound reactions to God, Jesus' claim of godness that you will see in humanity. But for today... We're going to look at part one. So let's look at our passage. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. And as he, Jesus, was saying these things, notice this, if you write in your Bible, many believed in him. And so Jesus said to the Jews, that's a, 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 an expression that John uses to collect all that was the people that were there. So that's religious Jews and observant Jews and all these things. And so he said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus answered them, truly, truly, and that's another expression that's meant to get your attention I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I don't know about this, but did you notice some words in these just seven verses? Words like abide and word, and truth, and then free. Now, I want to ask you, if you're here, and I've got young people and students and folks that have good jobs, and do you know what these words mean? And, and if you said, well, I know what abide means, and I won't know what Jesus talked about with the word here, and I know what truth means, and I know what free means, okay, so do you live your life by these words? Are these the words that define your life? I mean, what does it mean to abide? What does Jesus mean when he says to abide in the word? And then he says that the truth shall set you free. Well, what is truth, especially in a 21st century world? So I think we can break down our passage into three parts. First, Jesus defines what true faith is. So number one is true faith. 
Notice the way we begin, and we have what could be, be, could, uh, be conceived as a confusing statement. Look at verse 30 again. At the end of it, John tells us, many believed in him. Now, if you take that verse at face value, you might be tempted like I am to read that and go, yay, some people are trusting in Jesus. But the rest of the passage tells us that something is wrong. And this is something we've seen before in John's gospel. If you remember all the way back in John chapter 2, remember what John told us about? Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in the Passover feast, notice this expression, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, John is going to go out of his way in his gospel to tell us there will be an emotional and I'm impressed with Jesus type of belief that comes up in this gospel. It comes up again in John chapter 6 after Jesus feeds those 5,000. But there Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Notice here, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so John wants you and I, his audience, to know the difference. Now, again, if you take notes, write this down, especially you young people. Know the difference between a profession of faith, that is, I will profess that I believe in Jesus, and a genuine possession of faith. And so I want everybody here to know the difference. There's a difference between professing Jesus and possessing Jesus. And I would submit that the group before us in John 8 is impressed with Jesus' appeal Jesus has just said, I'm God. And they're impressed by this. They're impressed by his signs and wonders. And interestingly, they're they're prepared to accept Jesus, that is, profess him, as long as they're in control. As long as they get to define and determine what the terms of this agreement is. And so Jesus simply quotes something different to them. And I love it when Jesus passes me my own outline, because did you notice it? Look at verse 31 and 32. He says, if you abide in my word. So here's the condition. If you abide in my word, then here are the results. You are truly my disciples, number one. Two, you will know the truth. And three, you'll be set free by that truth. That's what you see in verse 31 and 32. So the question becomes then, once again, well, then what does he mean by abide? I mean, how do you abide in the Word? And what is this truth Jesus is talking about? And of course, how is truth going to set us free? Well, first, you've got to understand this word abide. You see, this is a favorite word of John. He uses it a lot. In 14 times in 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, he will use this word abide. Sometimes, depending on your translation, it might be the word remain. You'll either see the word abide or remain. In fact, in 1 John, his letter, he uses the word abide 23 times in just five or so chapters. He uses it again in 2 John twice. And so whether this word is abide or remain, it actually means to remain or continue or dwell. And for Jesus, though, it's more of a life connection. In other words, are you ready for this? To abide in the word means to have a relationship. There's the catchword of the 21st century. How do I have a relationship with somebody? We're all looking for relationships. 
See, Jesus, we are told, abides in the Father. We're going to find that out in just a few chapters. John 14, 10, Jesus says, I abide in the Father, and the Father abides in me. Do you remember all the way back in the introduction of John 1, we found out that the Spirit abides on the Son. Remember John said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It means it abided on him. And so, Jesus says, hey, you profess me? Well, here's what it means to possess me. Those of you that have a life connection with me will remain or abide with me. We're going to look at this in great detail in John 15 when Jesus says, abide in me, when he uses the branches and the vine idea over and over again. You see, ultimately, Jesus is explaining what does an intimate relationship look like? Jesus says to abide, it means to be so close to someone that you simply can't live without that person. In other words, you find life from that person. That person fuels you. So let me ask you here this morning. As you think about your life, your marriage, your parenting, school, work, family, does Jesus fuel you? Do you abide in him? Remember that 90s pop song, you are the wind beneath my wings. This is what what Jesus is basically saying. He's saying, are are you abiding? Am I the wind beneath your wings? I, I think David got this. Do you ever notice how many in the times in the Psalms, David just piles up the superlative adjectives to describe what God means to him? In Psalm 18, David said, I love you, O Lord. Now notice this, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God. Then he goes, my rock. It's almost like he had to say it again. In whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And I will call upon the Lord who was worthy to be praised. And I am saved from mine enemies. Would you get the impression that David abided in God? This is where he was. This is where he found his strength. And so Jesus tells us, That when we abide in him, in his word, and in prayer, in a relationship with him, he says we're going to be truly his. You're going to know the truth. And that truth will set you free. I read this week. You see, the difference between truth being out there Like, there are things that are true that are out there that you and I don't know that are true. And even though it's true, you and I can't be emotionally or experientially impacted by it. I know stuff is true, but there's stuff that's true that I don't know. You see, for instance, when Abraham Lincoln declared all slaves freed in the Emancipation Proclamation, that was now truth. But it wasn't until every slave had learned of that that they truly experienced freedom. You see, even though Abraham Lincoln declared it, it took a while for that truth to make its way to the ears of every slave. And until a slave knew, I'm free, he couldn't actually operate on that truth. And yet, even even greater tragedy is to know the truth and then still act like a slave. I don't know how many of you have either read the book or watched the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. If you haven't, I really do encourage you to either read the book or watch the movie or do both. But in that movie, 
the main character, Dantes, is finally freed and he has found the treasure and he is now still enacting his revenge, but he's bought this beautiful castle and his plans are in place and, and Jacopo, his servant that he had spared his life, who is now dedicated to him, goes in and one of the scenes of the movie is very powerful because he bursts in and this morning in this luxurious castle, in this luxurious bedroom, and this luxurious bed, and where does Jacopo find Dantes? But on the floor, sleeping with a sheet and not even a pillow. You see, he knew the truth that he was free, but in his mind, he's still acting like a slave. You see the difference? And so Christians, here this morning, may we never live like that where we can know the truth, but still act like slaves. And so the question we need to ask her is when Jesus is telling us that by abiding in his word results in knowing the truth and being set free, is he talking about a set of facts or about a person? So the question that we've got to answer is this. When Jesus tells us this, he's talking about himself. Kevin DeYoung reminds us, God did not send a concept or an idea or a virtue. He sent his son. And so he says, follow the God of love, not love as your God. See, that's a concept. We're supposed to follow the God of love. And so Jesus says, you are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. And you'll abide in my word if you are truly my disciples. And so the question is, are you abiding in God's word? Let's be personal. My friend Richard Phillips says, is the word of God the food of your soul in which you constantly abide? Let's just take a couple of seconds here on this Sunday morning and be honest. In the busyness of life, with the hustle and bustle of jobs and paying the bills and repairs at the house and getting the kids to soccer or hockey or whatever it is that you're dealing with, family dynamics, is the word of God the food of your soul in which you constantly abide? Is your faith in Jesus high enough among your priorities that you devote yourself to serious Bible study? Is the word of God increasingly manifesting godly fruit in your life? If you're a Christian, is your character changing? Are your habits being reformed? Is your attitude towards time and relationships and money and speech being molded by the teaching of Jesus and by Jesus himself? You see, how would you answer those questions? Well, you'd say, maybe some of you in here might say, well, Steve, not really. I, I, don't, I don't really see a difference in my life. I know, I know what I've professed, but really, if everybody knew me, my life's really not that different. Or maybe you'd say, well, Steve, this is hard. Like, this is a hard slog. I mean, I'm a work in progress, or, man, I'm getting there. And you see, in our passage, Jesus says, freedom is to be found by abiding in the person and work of Jesus. And you do that by spending time with him and learning from him and of him. And by the way, Jesus nor John here is saying you won't have ups and downs. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you're going to have struggles or setbacks. What Jesus is telling us is that true disciples always run back to Jesus, even in the face of your failure. Why? Because that's where you're going to abide. 
because you know it's safe to go there. You know there's grace there and mercy's there and love is there and security's there. So you have to come back. You're compelled to come back because that's where you abide. I get asked all the time when I go and speak and people ask me my testimony or I tell them about my life and someone will say, have you ever doubted Jesus? Have you ever doubted your salvation? And I have to be completely honest. I never have. I've never doubted my salvation. I've never doubted Jesus. You know why? Because I have failed. I have screwed up. I have screwed up bad. I've even tried to run from Jesus. You know what happens? Jesus comes and gets me every time. And I know that it's safe to go and abide with my Savior. Because that's where real freedom is found. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus himself promised in Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so this abiding is not just intellectual, it's experienced because Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. Now, if you got your Bibles open to John 8, look back at verse 12. Because that's that second big I am statement of Jesus. I am the light of the world. But notice what he says as a result of that. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light or the light of freedom. Jesus says, if you and I abide in Jesus, we get more of him. We learn more truth. You understand more. You become better at applying the word of God to everyday life. And you see, that's the tragedy I see played out in your lives and mine here in this church. We just don't do enough to abide in the word of God so Jesus can change us and then transform us. That's the essence of Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Well, how do you you not do that? But be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Notice this, that by testing. So don't separate that when you spend time with the word of God and you spend time in prayer, that now you'll have a Shangri-La life. You're not, okay? But if you renew your mind in the word of God, if you renew your mind with Jesus, when testing comes, when trials come, when family disagreements happen, when financial setbacks come, when, when physical setbacks come, when mental setbacks come, that's the testing then you're going to be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Calvary, listen, we need to stop giving so much of our headspace to what will only lead us into the dark. How much time do you and I spend thinking about the world's ideas of life and not God's declaration of the reality of life? We spend way too much time listening to the sateful siren songs of the world. You and I need truth. And again, this is what makes this passage radical and why the audience reacts the way they do. See, Jesus isn't talking about information. He's talking about a person, himself. He says, abide in me, and then you'll get more of me, and that will result in freedom. Now, listen to me. I mean this from my heart. You see, to be saved born again, converted, whatever word you want to use. To be a true Christian is to be set free. Now, set free from what? Well, Jeff even prayed about it. Set free from fear. Set free from self and self-interest. You're set free from the opinions of others. You're set free, most importantly, 
from the power of sin. See, let me ask you, is there any greater enemy to freedom than fear? Than fear. Fear grips us, doesn't it? It really does. I've told you about my fear from the trivial. Some, I have two big phobic fears that you guys, almost everybody in here is going to laugh at. I have a fear of bumblebees and wasps. I really do. Yes, Celeste, I do. Yes, moan that. No, yeah, I am. I'm deathly afraid of them. And I'm afraid of dogs. I'm afraid of dogs, especially small ones that yip a lot. Whenever I go over to Scott and Lori's, and, and that, there's a chihuahua that's basically the size of an oversized rat. But you know what? When that thing still yips, I still make sure my eyes know where that dog is at all times. And that's what you do. You laugh. It's a trivial fear, right? And every one of you has some. I'm just up here admitting it. But all of you have trivial fears. But then there's these other big fears, right? Fear of people. Fear of death. Huh. I even wonder in this room how many of you are afraid to die. Fear of the unknown. Fear of losing a job. Fear of having no money. Fear of the unexpected bill. Fear of rejection. Fear of failure. Fear of not being in control of your life or the lives of people around you. Fear of loving a lo- losing a loved one. The fear of not having a girlfriend or not getting a boyfriend. Maybe you're afraid of not graduating or graduating with honors or being able to graduate and get into the school or the program you want to. Fear of not getting our parents' approval. (laughs) Isn't it any wonder that the number one command of the entire Bible is actually the words, fear not? That's the number one command of the Bible. Fear not. It's like Jesus and God knew that we are afraid people. No wonder we're called sheep. Have you ever been around sheep? They're fearful animals. In fact, there's a type of sheep you can actually walk up, and if you walk up behind it and scare it, it will stiffen up and die. Is it any wonder that the Bible constantly refers to you and I as sheep? Because we're easily afraid. But that's why... Jesus gives us these beautiful words like Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now by the flesh, I live by the power of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It's why Paul would say to the Philippians, but my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. So we don't have to be afraid. John would tell us in his epistles, perfect love casts out fear. And we can be free from self because now we can trust Jesus more than ourselves. I tell you, the older older I get, my father used to say to me, Steve, the hardest thing you'll ever do in life is be honest with yourself. Self-delusion is the greatest, greatest tragedy of the modern human culture. We lie to ourselves. We have freedom from others because nothing they can say or do will take away what we have in Jesus and from him. And we've been set free from the power of sin. So that's true faith. But now look at verse 33, because the Jews are going to respond, and they're going to show us what true slavery actually is. That's my second point, true slavery. Look at verse 33. It is absolutely amazing to me how this group answers Jesus. He said, they say to him, but we are descendants of Abraham, and we have never been slaves. How can you say we'll become free? Huh. 
See, they claim heritage to Abraham, and then they claim, we don't need freedom. We already have and always been free. Now, you might be like me when I read this, and I'm like, how can you say that with a straight face? A group of Jews, especially in the first century. I mean, um, if memory serves me correct, isn't Rome in charge here in the first century in Israel? Um, last time I checked, there's this massive building called the Fortress of Antonia that's actually attached to the temple where the Roman representative of Rome and over Caesar sits and watches in power over the nations of the Jews. And plus, you might even think, oh, come off it. Come off it, guys. You've been slaves more than you've been free. I mean, let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. First there was Egypt, then there was Assyria, then there was Babylon, then there was the Persians, and that's not to mention the Philistines. And they say, no, we are free people. Now you need to realize they're not talking about political or physical freedom. They're actually talking about a spiritual freedom. In fact, they're actually looking for physical and political freedom, but Jesus keeps offering them spiritual healing and freedom, and that's what's ticking them off. You see, they prided themselves in saying, we are the Jews. We have always been monotheistic. We have always and only ever worshiped God. Even their own writings, the Mishnah says this, listen, even the poorest in Israel are looked upon as free men or women who have lost their possessions. Now, here's why. For they are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is it any wonder Then they said, hey, hey, Jesus, listen, thanks for this offer of freedom, but we're the sons and daughters of Abraham, buddy. We've never been slaves. How can, how, how, why would you offer us freedom? See, this attitude actually shows us just how enslaved they were. Because is there any slavery worse than that of self-delusion? You see, maybe some of you, if we fast forward 21 centuries, you might be thinking, hey, listen, Steve, I'm a free thinker. I'm a free spirit. And actually, no, you're not. Because who told you to be that? Who gave you the example to follow? You see, the idea that we are slaves to sin in need of savoring from ourselves is actually what pits Christianity against the world the most. That we are not free. In fact, we will never be free. We are always serving someone. The question really is, who will you trust and serve? You remember, David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. And again, Richard Phillips says, we may boast of our freedom, whether we are ancient Jews or modern Canadians, but the reality is that our wills are constrained by sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains, the world is in unutterable slavery. Oh, the power of this darkness. Why do we keep on doing things that we know are wrong? There's a question for the ages. Why do we keep doing things we know are wrong? Why do we do things we know that will hurt us? And why do we do these things though we know something of their consequences? Is that not a definition of our culture? How often do we overeat knowing the whole time we're doing it that indigestion and a late night awaits us? Why do we chase after a relationship even though we know this is not going to satisfy me? Why do we give in to our anger even though we know at the end of it there will be a burst of words and expressions that are going to have repercussions and consequences. 
And by the way, when you look at it, Jesus wants them to know that slavery is not defined by heritage, a.k.a. person. He says your slavery is defined by sin, a.k.a. your nature. Okay? They were saying, oh, we're Abraham's seed. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're Abraham's seed, all right. But let me tell you something else. You're also Adam's seed. And therefore, you're sinners. And that's where you got to see the big picture. Look at verse 35. Because Jesus then says... The, son, the slave doesn't always stay in the house, but the son does. Now, this would have grossly offended this audience, and they would have known exactly who he was talking about. And this is why you need to read your Bible, all of it, and go back to the Old Testament, because this is now Jesus talking about the sons of Abraham. They brought it up. They said, we are the sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, yes, you are, but you're always thinking Isaac. I'm thinking Ishmael. You see, the Jews had denied denied their need for freedom on the grounds that they were Abraham's children. But Jesus reminds them that Abraham had more than one son. And you remember that Ishmael, even Daniel's going to preach about it in Galatians, is the son of slavery. He was born to that slave woman, Hagar. And while he lived with Abraham, he benefited from Abraham's care, just as sinners do in God's world. But because Ishmael was not free, the time came when he was sent away. Do you remember what God told Abraham? In Genesis 21, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir. And so God in verse 35, Jesus in verse 35 is looking at them and saying, listen, even Abraham's son could not be accepted by God so long as they were slaves to sin. But then Abraham's second son, Isaac, born of grace, born of promise, born in the womb of Sarah, Isaac, remained forever in Abraham's household as a true son of faith and inherited the covenant blessings. And so Jesus says, let me tell you who you are. You're sons of Abraham, all right, but through Ishmael, not through Isaac. You see, the first genuine disciples didn't follow Jesus because he promised to make their lives better but because they believed he was better than life. And let me tell you something, he still is. But that's why John 1.12 is so amazing. See, Jesus is looking at them and offering them freedom, but to all who did receive him, whether you're the son of Abraham or the son of Adam, doesn't matter. Who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And that brings us to verse 36, because you have true faith, true slavery, and verse 36 is, true freedom. Because notice, now Jesus changes it. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know truth, and the truth will set you free. And then he goes a step further in verse 36. He says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. You see, he looked at these Israelites, and he said, you think freedom is a system. You think freedom is a religious code. You are proud of your temple and your sacrifices and your priesthood and your commentaries. They were proud of their heritage. And might I add, just like us as Newfoundlanders, let's get personal. We're proud of our heritage. We love who we are. We love Come From Away the musical because it highlights what we think is best about us. We love our humor. We love our friendliness. We love our hospitality. But we fancy ourselves as a culture as free people. We look into the wind of the driving northeast and we say, bring it as you will, but we are free. This is our province. This is our way. But the truth is, drive to Costco on a Saturday afternoon down the Outer Ring Road and try and get into the grocery line. And you will find out that for freedom, we are not a very happy bunch. 
Listen to open line. And for all of our freedom, boy, we know how to complain and whine. See, they worship their heritage. Jesus, though, says Abraham, Moses, and the law, and the temple, and the sacrificial system, nothing can set them free. So he says, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Notice again that if. The condition is the Son. Jesus is the only one who can forgive us and transform us and lead us and teach us and guide us and empower us and protect us. Now, I want you to think of Jesus and imagine Psalm 23. Now, let me, let me take you, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord provides me with freedom I shall not want. The Lord makes me, Jesus makes me to lie down in green pastures. The Lord makes me, leads me beside the still waters. Jesus and his freedom are his rod and his staff and they comfort me. Jesus takes me through the valley of the shadow of death and I don't fear any evil because he's with me. Do you see how this abiding and this truth now brings freedom? And because of Jesus and this freedom, he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies and I'm not afraid. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life And because of Jesus and his freedom, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, when I was studying this, this psalm now means so much more to me. And you see, what does Jesus offer them? Freedom from what? He offers them freedom from the guilt of sin and freedom from the power of sin. He accomplished the first by dying for us. We sang it in our song. The wrath of God has been satisfied and in Christ alone. And then he accomplished the second by rising from the dead for us and giving us his Holy Spirit. And so we don't have to trust in ourselves. In fact, you might be, the one thing you need to take from this is that Jesus is making a declarative statement of this. There's no such thing as you being an autonomous being. I am my own God. I define myself. I decide what truth is. I was talking to Steve Da. You know, even the legal profession gets this. Because one of the first sayings you're taught in law school is this. The man or woman who has themselves as a lawyer has a fool for a client. And you know what? If you want to be your own God, you're going to find out you're a lousy God to yourself. See, to be your own God is to destroy yourself. And you're all the way back to Genesis 3. You see, here's the ultimate sin. Satan lies. And that's why Jesus keeps saying things like, you are of your father, the devil. You see, true freedom that Jesus offers is not autonomy. It's not to make you somehow God of your own life, but rather true freedom is to stop fighting, stop lying, stop earning, stop pretending, stop justifying, stop controlling, and start admitting, I can't. I'd never satisfy myself. I'd always find a way to screw it up. Now you understand why Jesus says what he does in Matthew 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, notice this. He doesn't say, take my yoke off of you and live as free people. Notice what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find freedom, rest for your souls. For my freedom yoke is easy, and my freedom burden is light. Do you see it? True freedom is to come under Jesus It means you believe in someone enough to follow them. You trust him. You believe that he's good. You see, 
You guys have been praying so faithfully for Debbie and I and Brandon and Stacy. God has blessed my wife and I. Brandon nor Jordan nor Abby have ever spent a night in a hospital, ever. Outside of when they were born, Debbie came home, and they've been healthy kids. Watching Piper get sick and have to go to the hospital, and because Debbie and I aren't feeling well, not being able to go to the hospital and see her, and only seeing pictures and videos of feeding tubes and having them make at least 20 attempts to get an intravenous into her little body. And so now her hands and her legs are black and blue, and you feel so helpless. And then you realize, Russ texted me, and I said to Russ in a text back, now my theology is really at play. Because when my life isn't going the way I want it for someone that I love and I feel is so helpless and innocent, is God still good? And here's the answer. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He is still good. He is still good. And this is why he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You see, Spurgeon proclaimed a life under the rule of Christ can alone prove that we are the objects of our Lord's delight. And my friends, young and old, male and female, do you believe Jesus like this? The word that we abide in, the truth that sets us free has always been a person and never a set of rules or a philosophy or a science. It's Jesus. And that's why Jesus says what he does in John 14, 6. See, again, you know what I'm going to say, right? When, Je- when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. But let's read it all. Jesus starts out by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, notice this. Thomas said to him, basically... Doubting Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Basically, we're not really free. We don't know the truth yet. And what does Jesus say to him? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See this? Abide in me, Thomas, and I will show you the truth, and you'll have freedom. So now Philip pipes in, Lord, Show us the Father. It is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Listen, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you see now he's he's inviting them in to abide in him and he's showing them more stuff. Do Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Notice what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now, is this not the definition of freedom? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Oh, You can be a slave to religion or a slave to reason, a slave to intellect or academia. You can even be a slave to yourself, but we're all under something. Why not be a slave to Christ? And so I ask you this morning as we leave, do you see yourself as a slave to sin and are you willing to trust Jesus to set you free from the guilt of sin and from the power of sin? And Christian... Are you living like a free person, abiding in Christ, 
Or are you still clinging to elements of your slavery? You guys know that my preaching hero is actually Charles Spurgeon. I end with this. I found the very last words he ever preached, his last sermon at Metropolitan Tabernacle. And I wonder if John 8, 30 to 36 was on his mind. Here are the last words he said to his church in his late 50s. He would die not long after this. His last words of his last sermon were this. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend on it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the yoke of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his life among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he will always take the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender,